So, Exodus 19. And um, so if you were with us in the autumn term, you'd have known that we did Exodus up to this point, and we kind of left it on a bit of a cliffhanger. Da, da, da. Brilliant. So I'm excited to be going on in Exodus. Now, when we talked about this, you know, people go, mm, well, Exodus is a bit tricky, you know, but we're plowing on, and we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments, God's rules, as they're sometimes called. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, quite a small little brethren church, and it was absolutely amazing, gave me loads of foundational stuff that's helped me in my life. Um, and I understood the basic gospel. I understood Jesus died for me so that I could be his friend and I could go to heaven. Da-da. <laughs> and I knew that every week the preacher would get up and give us kind of talks about how to live life. And in youth group, they'd cover topics like uh, sex and drugs or whatever they thought was the evil of the day that they needed to deal with. Um, but the rules for me, I don't think they ever really clicked in my head. It's some quite disjointed between this God of grace that comes to me and loves me totally as I am, and that's it, and this sort of set of things to do or don't do. Um, and I don't know how, as a teenager, my brain was working, but I just kind of thought they didn't really matter. You know, you might feel the same. Um, it wasn't till about five years later that um, I kind of hit the floor hard in front of God with my nose on the floor, uh, realizing that uh, following, doing what I wanted to do, had led me into not a very pretty place. But as I came to God, what I found in that moment of uh, communion, we might say, or friendship between me and God, as I came to him broken and saying, help me, was not a set of rules, but a relationship. I found a God who loved me. I felt overwhelmed with love and totally in love with the God who loved me. And that's the difference, isn't it? Rules and relationships. And how that worked out was the next time I was in a situation that I might have merrily found myself skipping into, uh, it was actually a guy in my house, and I'll just let you see what you want. I found myself, no word of a lie, locked in the bathroom on my own, praying with absolute terror and reverence that this was not right and a very confused man found himself kicked out of the front door. <laughs> but can you see how my life changed? Not through rules, you should do this or you shouldn't do this, but out of just overwhelming sense of love from my father, that I wanted to please him because I had fallen in love with him. So how about you? Where are you on rules? As we come to look at the Ten Commandments, how are you feeling about that? Do they sometimes, some of the rules feel outdated or perhaps it's cultural, so maybe we should just ignore it now? When we look over the next 10 weeks at the Ten Commandments, they come part of 613. It's a bigger picture, a story of a relationship between God and his creation. 
So we'll be asking, what place do God's commands, his rules, have on us as we live in this place of grace? And how do we apply them to our current situation? How do we live those? What do they look like now, not then? What do they look like for us? So we're going to be looking this morning at 19, chapter 19, and a little bit of 20, which has been read already, because this is the preference, as it were. This is the context that we find these commands in. This is like the backstory. So we've got 2.4 million people gathered at the bottom of this pretty big mountain. And remember, when God went to Moses, he said, this is going to be a sign, people will worship me on this mountain, and this is it. So this morning, we want to think about, okay, so at this moment, in this context, what does it tell us about God? What can we learn about God? Well, firstly... Well, who is God? He is holy and terrifying. And we've thought about that and the words that we've sung this morning. When I was a teenager, I loved, believe it or not, I would never do it now, watching horror movies. I don't know if you can identify with that, but I, I very clearly remember being in my room with my, I had one of those tiny weeny little tellies that was about this big. It was actually TV radio alarm clock. I know, I know, feeling that. It was black and white. (laughs) I feel so old. (laughs) But I'd be watching something like, you know, Poltergeist or something, and I would be absolutely terrified to my bones, and I couldn't sleep the whole night. But it was the adrenaline, wasn't it, that kept me. This is why people like horror movies. They are drawn in by that buzz of adrenaline. But if you contrast that with real fear, when you're in genuine danger, it is not enjoyable at all. If you think about the moment you have been most terrified in your life, it, it's not, you don't think, oh, I'd like to do that again. That was an adrenaline rush. In fact, you don't. It is utterly, utterly terrifying. And when the people come to Mount Sinai before God, um, they are fully aware of what he is able to do. They've seen the plagues. They know who this God is. And his presence is there, and they are utterly terrified. If you have it open in front of you, briefly looking at chapter 19, verse 16, we have a record of just some of of what it was like. On that mountain on the third day, there was thunder and lightning. And I, I don't know about you, if you've ever been in thunder Like, I mean thunder that makes you really want to cry, because I have. (laughs) And uh, it was when I was living up a mountain, and the the clouds are so low that it literally feels like the thunder is in your room. And it's the only time I've ever got into... Like, I literally got into my housemate's bed with her and said, I'm terrified. This is what it's like, because the cloud has come low over the mountain. With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. And then look down 20, 
chapter 20, you have to flick the page for you. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. And we're told in Hebrews that Moses trembled with fear. There was nothing of anyone who was like, even though Moses was leading them towards this fearful uh, presence, he's still trembling. He's too terrified. They are too terrified of God to even want to hear him speaking. They beg Moses, just you speak to us. We, that is too much for us. But this is the context of the commands that were given. This is not a God you can sort of swagger up to, pop in, do a sacrifice, and jolly ho, life's good. This is not a God you can just sort of pick him up, pop him in your pocket, and pop him down there and say, thank you very much. This is nothing like that at all. God is completely different. Moses says, chapter 20, verse 20, uh, it's a bit weird to understand. It says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Bit unjust, bit weird. But the basic is, you know, the purpose of the power before them is not to destroy them. But... They need a healthy respect to their very boots that God's word is not to be ignored. He's saying, you know, don't be afraid to be afraid. That is the right response here. He needs them to be more afraid of him than of missing out on something else. A bit like my bathroom moment. Here we have God, who is totally different. 400 years they have spent in Egypt. And I want you to imagine the vastness of the pyramids, the hugeness of the statues to God, the awe-inspiring presence of these massive, massive statues to their gods. It speaks of power. It speaks of authority. It's something to come to like a gnat. But not once have any of these gods said anything. Not once have these gods heard them. Not once have these gods engaged with them. You know, in Jesus, tells us in Hebrews, we come to that mountain, not, not necessarily fear as our primary, but joyfully into it. But it's still the same God. God hasn't changed. Something has changed for us. You know, when we come, you know, we come joyfully, and rightfully so, we're his children, his treasured possessions. But let's just briefly look at Revelation. So if you have a Bible, it's in front of you, go right to the back of the Bible. And remember, this is John speaking, and he's one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus has ascended, and um, you want chapter 4. 
And John has this vision, he, he, oh, five, sorry, and he's swept up to the heavens and he sees Jesus on the throne. So Revelation 5, right at the back, verse 5. Ah, where am I? Ah, this is why I need the Bible, you see. I shouldn't just follow my notes. Okay, we want four, don't we? Yeah, four, verse five. Okay, chapter four, verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. Remind you of anything? In front of the throne, seven lamps blazing. There were seven spirits of God, and also in front of the throne, there was looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center round the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, da 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 da. And then what does it say? Verse 8 <clears throat> Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We see, picture here, here is Jesus. Jesus, here is Yahweh, the same, nothing has changed, as holy as before. Thunder, lightning is coming from the throne. Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Obedience comes through that basic understanding of who God is. Who is he? He's not tame, as they say. You know, everyone's a fan of saying that, aren't they? But he's not. He is powerful. He's not to be messed with. But he is on our side. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This God brings us life. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. This awe, this fear, this knowledge of who God is drives us into that healthy relationship and life. Okay, let's look second. What's second? This doesn't work, does it? I just play with it. (laughs) There we go. He wants relationship with his creation. That's number two. Throughout this passage, we see not a stone statue, but a God who is interacting with his people. If you look on chapter 19, you can follow it down. We see again and again. We see verse 3, that the Lord called to him. We see verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did. Verse 4 again, I carried you. Verse 4 again, I brought you. Verse 9, I am going to come to you. And then, so the people will hear me. And he talks about descending. We've got this situation with a God who is in communion with his people. He's talking to them and they are talking to him. You know, when I'm in a meeting or if I'm leading something, even if I'm the chair, 
I'm not just telling people what to do. I'm listening to what they say. I'm responding. I'm taking on board their ideas, and we're working together as a team. You would expect God, this God, who is infinitely more wise and knowing than us, to not work like this. And yet our God does. Right from Genesis, we see how Adam walks with God. They're in partnership, right from the beginning, talking together, working out, okay, so here's creation. What are we going to do with it? Later on, we see that doesn't stop with Abraham. He talks with Abraham. He has like this negotiation going on when he's talking about what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on, uh, we see again here with Moses, he will be with God. When God says, I'm not sure I'm going to go with you, there's like a negotiation going on. There's like a talking. It's a two-way thing. This is our God as he invites us in to partner with him. You'd think he perhaps wouldn't want to, but this is the God that we meet at Sinai. In um, Exodus 19, verse 6, he says these words. Let's find them. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my commands, and out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, In the New Testament, we read those words almost again in in Peter, when he says who we are, the church, a chosen people, a people belonging to God, a kingdom of priests, and all that sort of thing. It is explaining that God again wants to work with us. We are a kingdom of priests. Priests are those people that um, go between God and man. They are the people that bring them together. They are people that display his goodness. It says, a holy people displaying my glory. We get a chance to join in with what God is doing. He wants to walk with us, to invite us, to let us talk with him about the world's needs. We are, in Corinthians, it talks about his ambassadors. We are representing God. And as we go through the Ten Commandments, when we get to uh, honoring the Lord's name, we'll come back to that. He doesn't necessarily need us, but he wants us. Like Moses, Abraham, and Adam, he invites us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We get to say, Jesus, I know that you think this is awful. Please do something about this because this is your character Help me to do something about this, because this is your character. We work with him in partnership. And finally, what does it tell us about God? We need the next one, Bill. I'll give up. Good thing I didn't have a lot of, just a lot of slides. He rescues and restores. In the story of the Bible, we see these two bookends. This end, Genesis, this end, Revelation, where God and man work in partnership together. They are together. They are in each other's presence. There are no barriers around any mountain. 
The people at both ends fully enjoy the blessings of what God has created and him. And they function in the way they were meant to function with all the joy that comes with that. There's no place for evil. There's no place for pain. There's no place for suffering. There's no place for hatred. There's no place for murder. They're two perfect places. But in the middle is this story, isn't it, of God. God's call to his creation to come back to him, to be in relationship with him, to live under his good authority and rule. The only problem is we continually fail, just like they did. Every agreement God makes between man and himself, man breaks again and again and again. We see it. We can't live up to it. We just mess up. The Israelites here are about to receive the law. They have seen the power of God. They've trembled at the mountain face. They have heard what he said. They have said, we will obey it all. They have seen the power and majesty and terror of this God. And five minutes later, they'll be worshipping a golden calf. They just cannot do it. Something so much more radical is needed than rules. The human beings need to be free. They need to be changed. Or as Paul said last week, they need to be exchanged. They need a heart transplant, a mind change. They need to be something completely that they are not. In chapter 19, verse 4, God reminds them who who he is. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is one of the many pictures of God that he gives us of what Jesus will do. We see a picture of people enslaved. They cannot be free. They can't free themselves. They are under the terror of their captors. And we see a God who carries them to safety. This picture of an eagle, it's that whole kind of baby chick thing, isn't it? Here's the baby chick, out you go. Oh, you can't fly. Under comes the wings of the eagle and takes you to safety. In other words, you can't do it on your own. I, I need to carry you in this one. We can't free ourselves. We cannot keep the rules of God. And even when we think we're pretty good, we see in the New Testament that Jesus very quickly exposes people's hearts. When we see the young man come to Jesus, he says, I have kept all your commandments since birth. Dick. Jesus just so gently uncovers his heart and said, but you haven't kept the first one. No other gods. Because he says, sell everything you have and follow me. And the man goes away sad because he can't do it. He's got so much wealth. The wealth... He is massively in the place of following God. And next week, we'll dive more into that, about what is massively in the place for us of following God. And there isn't one person here who can say, nothing in the way, and we'll see that next week.
Jesus is so gentle with us, though. You know, when we put our lives honestly against his standards, we know we can't do it. The things that fill our minds obsessionally or drive us, we're often not even aware of. It takes him to gently uncover them for us to see them. We see these things as our saviour. They're the things that are going to give us joy. But it's momentary joy. It's like um, you want something. Well, let's take, let's take buying something. I would like this car. And for a moment, you feel the joy of the new car. But for the next 10 years, you feel the payments going out your bank account. There's no joy anymore, is there? And that is what we're doing constantly. We see an immediate joy. It feels so good. And we rush into it. We, We almost, we see it. We see it. We see the joy. We see the consequences. And we still go, but I want that joy. And that is our problem. We are slaves to it. And we need setting free. Of course, in the Old Testament, we see how David's promised a redeemer. One will come from his line. One whose kingdom will never end. And when Jesus comes, he is that one. And he says, I've not come to abolish the law, to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. And Jesus perfectly fulfills every commandment that we cannot fill. It is the exchange, as they say. Here we have, very simple. Here is the pencil. Okay, we'll do the pencil v. the pen. Pencil is ours. We cannot fulfill the war. We are broken. We are slaves to sin. We keep buying the car. We keep going into that relationship we shouldn't go into because it feels good at the time, but afterwards it's awful. We keep diving here and diving there. We can't. We're totally trapped. And here is Jesus. Perfectly fulfills the law. And as Paul said last week, he offers the exchange. Our result is death. His result is life. We exchange. He takes the death and we take the life. It's simple. The great rescuer that comes to rescue people that cannot rescue themselves. So, finally, as we come to look at the Ten Commandments, we know that union has happened. We can think of it in terms of union and communion. The union has happened. The exchange has happened. Jesus, in effect, has led us into the court of the king and put our hands in his. It is done. But now comes communion. How will we live that out? Will we just say, thanks very much, off I go? Or will we live it out? And that's what we'll be looking at over the next 10 weeks. Jesus said, if you obey me, 
You will, uh, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And often I think we read it wrong. We think like obeying his commands is a sign that we love him. Mm. But obedience actually comes naturally when we love. Not obedience, then love. But rather being loved, feeling the love, and then wanting to obey him. And that's where we are as we stand on the precipice and we stand before the mountain and we're going to look at those ten commandments together. We need to come at that place that we've come before him, we know we can't do it, and we are overwhelmed with his love. And we want to serve him. That is what Jesus has done. He has come, he has overwhelmed us, poured his love on us and it's from that point that we say I just don't want to live like that anymore that is a terrifying place for me to be I want to be with you so let's pray and then we'll sing together